Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. Once, a fairly good sculptor was working on creating a beautiful facade for a basilica, except the patron who was supporting his work just ran short on cash, and no facade was ever completed for the basilica. This all happened about 500 years ago in Florence. The sculptor was a fellow named Michelangelo. What's at stake here is who gets to make it, who gets to call the tune, right? I mean, if we rely on private patronage, then that's a, that's a different form of the same problem. And also, what is the art that people make going to look like? William Derozowitz used to teach at Yale and Columbia, and he's probably most famous for writing the book Excellent Sheep about the problems with elite education. More recently, though, he's turned his gaze to something different, a major shift in American arts. Even that fantasy of being discovered, you know, you put jokes up on Twitter and the next thing you know, you're in a writer's room in Hollywood working on a TV show. Things like that happen. What we can't let happen is believing that that's going to happen to you just because you've read about it. Like those are the stories we tell about artists in the Internet age, the surprise viral hit, you know, The Martian or Fifty Shades of Grey. But a million books are self-published every year. Okay, so maybe one of them is going to be Fifty Shades of Grey. Millions of songs are put online every year. So maybe one of them or 10 of them are going to get you a, a label deal. But most people, it's not, it's not going to happen for them. Indeed, Derozowitz argues art, as practiced by people who devote their lives to it, is largely falling apart. It's a cultural calamity. He details in the book, The Death of the Artist, How Creators Are Struggling to Survive in the Age of Billionaires and Big Tech. Derezowitz interviewed dozens and dozens of musicians and painters and authors, most of whom started to see, and this is long before COVID hit, that professional creators in America were fading away. Like the novelist who told me, like, when I got my first advance, I actually went out and bought some produce because I'd been living on peanut butter filled pretzels because I was making a dollars to calories calculation. Why is this happening? Though great art may seem, and it is, eternal, brilliant writers and singers and sculptors, they have to exist in the marketplace around them. Michelangelo, for example, operated under a patronage system. Today's artists live in a tech-fueled world. It can make them, and it can break them. It started in music with Napster in 1999. But basically, anything that can be digitized, which means recorded music, any kind of text, visual art, you know, photography, illustration, design, videography, has been priced down by the internet to zero or so close to zero that it doesn't even matter anymore in terms of artists' revenue. Like, they, like the musicians I talked to for this book didn't even mention their streaming revenue because it's so tiny. The new tech, Derezowitz says, destroyed old business models. And meanwhile, a shrinking middle class became increasingly unable to support the artists who desperately needed them. I mean, a wealthy person, yeah, they may spend a fortune on a painting, but if they're interested in a book, they're only going to buy one copy or one movie ticket or, or one Netflix subscription. In order for the arts economy to thrive, we need middle class consumers who, who can open their wallets and really support the arts that they care about. And the more the middle class gets squeezed, the harder that's going to be. 
Now, obviously, we're living through a moment when lots of people aren't going to the movies or the symphony or music concerts or theater performances, and it just goes on and on. There's no question, argues Derezowitz, we're in a full-blown arts depression. But it's worth paying attention to the forces that were shifting American arts even before COVID, because those shifts were profound. Now, it's also worth noting that there are some artists who have figured out how to turn those forces in their favor. Derezowit says, success happens, but it often requires a certain approach. Take, for example, an artist named Jane Mount. She aspired to be a painter. She went to art school. And the way things worked out, she ended up, what she does now, she makes a really good living painting what she calls ideal bookshelves for people. Basically, you tell her your favorite books or your mom's favorite books. And she paints a little shelf. She does a little painting of those books lined up on a shelf. And people love this. And she sells a lot of them. And she's also a great merchandiser. So she puts the images on note cards and mugs and wrapping paper and stationery and enamel pins. And she sells not only through Etsy, but through bookstores. On the other hand, while she really enjoys the work and it makes her a good living, it's not the art she set out to make. And she's very aware of that. And she actually calls herself an illustrator and dreams of the day when she can go back to making her art. I mean, the Internet has enabled her to do this and enabled her to sell directly to the audience, which is exactly the promise of the Internet. But at the same time, it's not really what she ended up wanting to do. So is how different is this uh, than things used to be for artists? Did it used to be that artists were able to create without so much attention to, you know, obviously if you're selling on Etsy, you, you kind of do have to pay attention to what the consumer wants. And you're describing somebody who, who figured out something that could, the consumers is into to some degree. Right. Is that a switch? It is. Look, I mean, people are probably asking themselves, you know, have, have an artist so he's had it hard. And the answer is yes, but a lot of artists have always had it hard. But before the internet came along, if you were one of those people, a minority of artists who managed to establish a career, not as a superstar, but just as a full-time working artist who published or showed your work or recorded and toured and had an audience base and had the respect of peers and critics, you could make a decent living. Like, that was a middle-class job description before the Internet came along. And it's true that that model excluded a lot of people. The Internet has enabled many more people to come into the game and try to put their work online and appeal directly to the audience. But it's also, it's reduced revenue for lots of people, and it also has, you know, sliced the pie into a million different little slices. You know, there are like literally 10 million people who have music on SoundCloud. There's Mm. literally a million books self-published every year. So for that kind of middle tier of artists, which is really most serious artists, and they're the lifeblood of the arts, life is much harder now. It's like a working class job description. And we know what being working class in America in the 21st century means being poor. And that definitely is different than it was before. Can you tell the story of somebody who, unlike, I think it was Jane Mount, right? The yes. Okay. Unlike yes. her, um, has not, the, the change, the technological change that we've seen in arts has not really worked out for them. Sure. Um, one of the musicians I interviewed is named Nina Nastasia. 
She's in her 50s. She's been doing this for 30 plus years. She's a, a wonderful singer-songwriter with a small but dedicated fan base. Her music means, I mean, her songs are beautiful. You can look them up online, Nina Nastasia. They're haunting. The people who are devoted to her just, like, she means so much to them. And back in the day when she could, you know, sell CDs or sell LPs, she could make a living. I mean, she and her husband have always lived really marginally, but they've managed to survive. They live in a 200-square-foot apartment in in Manhattan, rent-controlled. Okay. 200 that's square feet, little. that's like the yeah. size of a bedroom. Yeah. But And he's an artist, too. But they, they made it work for a long time. They have fans overseas. They've toured Europe many times. They've toured Siberia. They're like the real sort of romantic, bohemian, but honest, serious artists. And the Internet has just pulled the rug out from under them. They have not been able to make a living because they can't make any money from their recorded music. The way they put it to me is like they were used to the labels cheating them, but now their fans cheat them in the sense that they don't pay for their music. Like, literally, she was at the merch table after her show, and somebody came up and just asked if she could have one of, the C- one of her CDs. Like, can I just have this? <laughs> you know, not pay for it, just have it. And what does that illustrate? It illustrates the fact that in the age of free music and free everything, the audience has come to expect that things will be free, even things that obviously shouldn't be free, like a f- like physical media, a CD. So like in, in an earlier era, people would have gone to, uh, let's say, Tower Records, if anybody remembers that, you know, or something like that kind of place and handed over their money to the singer. But but now that's just not happening. They're finding their songs. The songs are relatively cheap. And the and the singer herself is getting very little. The songs are free, right? I mean, you can get it music free on Spotify or YouTube. I mean, I think a lot of fans think, well, streaming, streaming pays. Half of music streaming happens over YouTube. And the estimates are, because Google, which owns YouTube, doesn't have to tell us, that the streaming rate on YouTube is seven hundredths of a cent. Not seven cents, seven hundredths of a cent per stream, which means if people stream your music a million times you get $700. This is why the musicians I talked to didn't even bother to mention their streaming revenue. Even for somebody who makes $25,000 a year, it's not worth talking about. Your book is called The Death of the Artist. Is it really so dire and have things changed so much that you feel like, yeah, you know, this is a moment when there is a real transformation here? Listen, the, the, the title is metaphorical and a little hyperbolic, and it just indicates the fact that we all have to compete in the attention economy, including my little book. <laughs> so I needed to get people's attention, and I'm perfectly happy to be upfront about that. I do think there is a transformation that's happening, and I, I'm not the only person who's recognizing it, I think. And it's what I already outlined. The, the key point is not that it's hard to be an artist. That's, that was already true. Not that many artists struggle that was already true. But the people who are the lifeblood of the art, that, I don't know, 5%, I'm picking a number at random, who actually make it to, to a stable, successful career, stable in artistic terms, like people recognize them, like Nina Nastasia, like people who are established but not stars. We might be losing those people. And that would be a disaster because you can't have even the stars 
without an ecosystem that supports them, right? Without a substrate, a matrix that they rise out of. People will still make art. They may make art for only a few years when they're young before they have to drop out for financial reasons. Or they'll make art because they have money, because they have family money. Mm -hmm. They're from affluent mm -hmm. families or they have a spouse. I heard anecdotal evidence, you know, from all the arts that I looked at, music, writing, visual art, film and television. People across those arts said it's getting more and more of a rich kid's game. And let's remember that in this country and probably in every country, wealth correlates with race. To a certain extent, it correlates with gender. So if we care about diversity and equity and access and inclusion, we have to think about these things. We have to think about economics. Hmm. Let's take a quick break here. I'm Kara Miller. I'm speaking with William DeRozowitz. He's the author of The Death of the Artist, How Creators Are Struggling to Survive in the Age of Billionaires and Big Tech. We're going to be back in just a minute to talk about whether the arts can be saved, how they might be able to be saved. You can find this whole conversation on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, where you can also subscribe to the show. And by the way, the song that you're hearing now is from the artist Nina Nastasia. From GBH Radio and PRX, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. We can't live without us. We all work so hard. And I can't believe how long it's been. I don't know what to do about it. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In 1993, the group The Breeders released this song, Cannonball, and it started to climb the charts. The lead singer, Kim Deal, was by then a pretty important person in alternative rock, not somebody who seems like they would later be featured in a book called The Death of the Artist. She's a big indie rock icon and has been for a good 30 years, maybe more. William Derozowitz is the author of The Death of the Artist, in which he argues the arts world, which has always been hard to break into and is always hard to squeeze a middle-class living out of, well, it's crumbling, as Kim Deal has seen. You know, she grew up in Dayton, and she lives back in Dayton. She's doing okay, she said to me, but again, fame does not equal wealth. And she said to me, you know, I'm a coal miner, I'm a steel man, I'm just another person whose industry has gone obsolete. The perplexing part about that, Derezowitz says, is that while coal is not used in the same widespread way that it once was in America, we still listen to music quite a bit, and it still produces a ton of money. But not much of that money goes into artists' pockets. Instead, lots of it goes to the tech companies that bring you the music. These companies are too powerful. They can dictate terms, especially to independent artists and even to labels and publishers, because they're so much bigger and so much more powerful. And we need to do something about that power. We need to reduce that power. Then there's the notion that we can all record our own songs with tools on our Apple computer and maybe we can break through the noise. But, says Derezowitz, that's mostly a pipe dream, one that has gotten way too much traction. Like, this is a profoundly irresponsible message to be disseminated, and it's been disseminated with all the marketing power of Silicon Valley. Still, he acknowledges that tech has, in some ways, widened the playing field. It's increased access, even if that's no real consolation to those hoping to turn art into a living. My argument is not that the Internet has been terrible for the arts in every respect. I think it's been terrible 
for working artists financially, it's done a lot of good things. And one of the things it's done is that it has democratized creation. And I think it's great for a lot of people. I mean, I'm a big fan of amateur creativity and people making their music and people writing their books. But there's a big difference between that and serious, I'm going to just say it, serious, talented, dedicated artists who make the stuff that the rest of us actually want to read and listen to. I mean, that's the issue, right? It's like, think about it. First of all, think about how much time you spend in an average day consuming art, meaning every kind of art, music and narrative television and books and everything, probably several hours. And then think about how much of that art is created by amateurs who just put their stuff out there. Probably none, but in any case, maybe at best very little. So God bless all the millions of people who want to do this and put their songs online. This is not the way to have a culture. And it's also not the way to have an arts economy. Are there bright spots? You mentioned television. And uh, I, I, for a lot of people, over the last six, eight months, we're doing a lot more television watching, not that we weren't doing plenty before. It, are there places for screenwriters or things that... that um, have blossomed because of technology, because of streaming services like Netflix, and now you've got Amazon in the TV business, and on and on. Yeah, there's no question that television has blossomed, you know, not just in terms of the numbers of shows, but aesthetically, artistically, right? I mean, around 2000, we got The Sopranos, uh, it was in 1999, the same year as Napster, and then all these terrific shows on HBO and Showtime, and now Amazon and Netflix and Hulu. And it's great. I mean, TV is the one art that's, that's confident, that's uh, blossoming, as you said. Why is this happening? It's not because we can get TV on streaming versus our television sets. It's because we pay for it. We pay a lot for it. I mean, if you add up the money that goes to television and your cable bill, Amazon Prime, Netflix, HBO Max, ESPN+, all the money that each of us is paying every month, that's flowing through the system. And that's why television is flourishing. That's why movie stars and movie directors and screenwriters have migrated from movies to television, because that's where the artistic opportunities are. If somebody does to television what Napster and now Spotify have done to music, that's going to disappear overnight. Okay, people are not going to, you know, Nicole Kidman is not going to do a TV series for 10 bucks. And maybe that's when people will realize what's been happening across the arts. I wonder what you see ahead. I mean, obviously, you know, when you talked about this notion of seeing like the death of the artist, um, that was even before, as we talked about, like that arts in many ways kind of shut down for several months. What is the way forward? I, I don't know that there's a good answer, but let me, let me say this. In the last few decades already, something we now call the food movement has arisen, where people have realized, you know, we're eating a lot of processed food, we're eating a lot of fast food, it's bad for us, it's bad for animals, it's bad for the planet, it's bad for the people who make the food for us. We need to consume in a more responsible way. So people have started to pay more for food, and we've started to restructure the food system a little bit around the edges. Then more recently, the same thing with clothing. People call it fast fashion, like, like fast food. And we try to be more conscious consumers of, you know, cheap clothing that's made in places like Vietnam and Bangladesh. I think we need the same kind of movement for art, because now we have what I call fast art. 
because this stuff has to be produced fast. If you're going to make enough to make a living, at the very least, you have to make a lot. And it's produced cheaply and it's consumed in haste. Music, text, visual images, moving images, everything. So, yeah, I do think that we need to become more conscious consumers and pay what we can. But also, like with food and fashion, larger structural changes also need to be made. And the more conscious we are as consumers and the more we, we are aware of the need for these changes and demand them from our public officials. And again, that's especially going to mean taking on big tech, which we now have so many reasons to do. This, I think, has the potential to maybe turn things around. When you talk to the many, many artists that you do, do you see large swaths of them just leaving art behind, sort of leaving a generation of artists with there's just not a lot of people in that generation anymore? Well, of course, I, I talk to people who are, who are still sticking it out. So mm. I sort of had a selection bias. Certainly, any, any artist can tell you about lots of their peers who have dropped out. And I would say in particular, the 30s is sort of the decade when people make that decision often. And I heard about this from a lot of people who, who either knew a lot of people who'd done it or were thinking of doing it, where you say to yourself, you know, again, I've had success, but is this really sustainable for me? And if it isn't, I'm 35 and I want to have a kid, or I'm 35 and I just had a kid, or forget about kids, I just can't do this anymore, I can't drive for Uber for another year, so now is the time for me to make an exit. And yes, it happens to a lot of people. I'm not saying that we're losing a generation. I think what, again, you know, we're, we're losing those older artists, right? I mean, we're losing those artists who get to their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and are now ready to make their mature work. I mean, if we think about artists we love, probably with the exception of popular music, but not even that necessarily, their greatest work was done a little later in life because it takes so many years to get good. It takes so many years to find your voice and refine your vision. And if artists just have to, you know, if this is just something that you do when you're young because you have to drop out and then make a living, that, again, is not going to be good for the rest of us. William Derusowitz is author of The Death of the Artist, How Creators Are Struggling to Survive in the Age of Billionaires and Big Tech. Bill, thank you so much. Thank you very much.